continuing our series in the book of Romans today. And our text for this morning is going to come from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. But before we read, I invite you to just take a moment to be quiet and to prepare yourself to hear what you need to hear this morning. As I've said before, there's a lot of noise around us and within us. We take it kind of wherever we go, even into a place like, like this. And the thing about this noise is that it has a tendency to crowd out what's holy. So I invite you to just be quiet, spend a moment reflecting on what it is that God might have to say to you this morning. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Holy God, be gracious to us now as we came seeking a word only you can give. We all came to this place carrying different burdens this morning. We ask that you meet each of us where we are today and speak to us, for we are listening. Amen. So Paul here in chapter 5 is, is making a transition um, from some of the earlier uh, Theology that he's been, he's been doing in the first four chapters, some of that dense theological um, writing, he's making a transition here into ethics, kind of from the head into the heart, from our abstract belief into our lived experience. And what I hope that you'll see is just how this theology that he's been, he's been telling us about actually frees us up to live in new and I think thrilling ways in the world. He tells us right out of the gate that since we are justified by faith, which is a, a pretty heavy theological statement, meaning that in Jesus Christ, we are accepted by God. We can give up all of our attempts for self-justification. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because of it, and we also have hope. We have hope in God's good purposes for our lives, both in the present and in the future. So where does that leave us? What does that mean for us? Paul tells us. It means principally that Christians are people filled with joy. People filled with joy. Isn't it interesting what he doesn't say? He doesn't say that Christians are people who are right all the time. He doesn't say that Christians are people who have it 
all together all of the time. He doesn't say that Christians are morally perfect. He says that we are joyful. The word that he uses here, boast, twice, he uses this word twice, can be translated as rejoice. And so to be at peace with God and to hope for a future shared in God's presence is an occasion for joy. As the uh, theologian Jürgen Moltmann once remarked, to believe is to enjoy the grace of God. To believe is to enjoy the grace of God. Your sins are forgiven. Don't you enjoy that? Don't you enjoy that? Or to quote a, a lesser known but equally important theologian in America, Stephen Colbert, <laughs> joy is the most infallible sign of the existence of God. Joy is the most infallible sign of the existence of God. But as you certainly know through your own experience, many of you certainly know this from experience currently, that life is messy and complex. It's filled with both beauty, moments of happiness and joy, and also moments of deep sorrow and suffering. The Apostle Paul knows this too which is why he reminds us that this joy that we have remains even in our sorrow and suffering. How can this be? Suffering is an enigma to us, right? It's, it's a mystery that no culture, religion, or scientific study, no data can fully understand. And yet it is universal. Though there are many causes for our suffering, we will all experience suffering to some degree in our lifetime. Many of you are experiencing it perhaps right now. In my brief experience as a pastor, I've seen suffering drive people deeper into their faith. And I've seen it be the cause of their losing their faith. And I think it's worth noting that Paul assumes that Suffering is part of our lives. He assumes it. Living in a broken world such as we do. Christians don't get a pass on suffering. We are not invulnerable to it. And yet I wonder if we uh, belong to the worst culture in history in dealing with suffering. Which is quite a claim, but I have, I think, two good reasons. The first is an irony. Progress. Well, we have progressed in such a way that our modern Western culture um, has the means to avoid daily suffering that even a century ago, much less in Paul's time, would have been unimaginable to them. Today, for the first time in history, more people die from eating too much than from eating too little. More people die from old age than infectious diseases. And the global population living in extreme poverty is overall uh, actually has been cut in half in just the past 20 years. What does this mean? It means, I think, that suffering uh, is always a disruption. It's less common in our daily lives than ever before. And I think that part of the trauma of suffering is that we don't expect it. Right? Some of the first words out of our mouth when we encounter suffering is, this, this isn't supposed to happen. Not to me. And I think that this progress ironically leaves us less prepared 
for suffering than previous eras. Paul assumes that we will suffer. But there's a second reason that our culture, I think, fails to prepare us for suffering, which is more significant, and that is secularism. A few years ago, I read a book called The Secular Age by philosopher Charles Taylor. If you are, are looking for a doorstop, uh, this is a great, this would be great for that. It's a very thick book. Um, I read it, I was forced to read it in grad school. Like, do not take this book on vacation with you this summer. If you need recommendations, I'm happy to oblige shorter, funnier reads. But it's a thick book and um, the claim that he is essentially exploring is that we uh, are living in what he calls a secular age. And he means something very specific uh, by this term. It's not that uh, people are particularly more hostile to God now than ever before. It just means that belief in God is more fraught than ever before. More and more people simply find belief in God unbelievable. So what, what does this have to do with suffering? Well, secular people uh, are willing to say that there may be a God. There may be a future with God, but they're not uh, prepared to take the leap of faith to trust that it is true. Which means that for the secular person, the only meaning and joy one can be sure of, again, it's one can be sure of, is whatever one can secure here and now. You see where I'm, I'm going with this? If your present circumstances are all you have to make a meaningful life, and to experience joy, then suffering can only be, can only be a meaningless interruption. So in our modern Western culture, we A, we don't expect suffering to touch our lives, and B, when we do suffer, our culture leads us to believe, and again, we are part of this culture. It's not an us and them, we're part of it. Leads us to believe that it's only a meaningless interruption, which in my opinion, I think, leaves us in a, a pretty hopeless place when inevitably we do suffer. Last week, I don't, I don't know if you had uh, the joy of watching, but I, I really enjoyed watching the royal wedding. Did you, anybody else watch the royal? This is a safe place, you can admit it, come on. <laughs> I want you to know that I have a lot of opinions about the royal wedding that I don't have time to share here, um, but I think you should know about them, so if you, <laughs> Let's get coffee. I'd love to talk to you about it. If you didn't get to see the, the Bishop's sermon, I, I highly recommend checking it out on YouTube. But what I've enjoyed more than actually watching the royal wedding was all the is all the reactions to the wedding. Um, specifically uh, to the way that the African-American tradition of preaching and worship played a significant part in a royal wedding. Uh, and it was interesting to hear so many express how, uh, quote, unconventional it was. This was the word that they used. It was very unconventional. Um, and in, her, in an interview right after the ceremony, um, Bishop Michael Curry, the, the presiding bishop of the American Episcopal Church, who delivered the sermon, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is Justin Welby, he's the kind of the spiritual leader of the church in England, they are being interviewed side by side. And... Um, and the interviewer uh, kept provoking Welby uh, to admit that the wedding was indeed unconventional, um, which was a very nice way of him saying inappropriate, right? <laughs> but he kept, he kept provoking the archbishop, and, to which Welby, who I think was rather exasperated by the question, responded off the cuff. And I want to read to you what he said. 
There is nothing conventional about Christianity. Christianity is about taking sin and me out of the center of the world and putting God through Jesus Christ and the love of God into the center of the world and blowing open a revolution that gives an energy and life to the world that nobody has ever replicated or seen. Come on, like, <laughs> off the cuff? <laughs> and again, for, for emphasis, well be reiterated, there is nothing conventional about Christianity. And I've been thinking about that all week as I've read through this text. There's nothing conventional about Christianity, which is a good reminder to us today as we consider suffering, isn't it? The conventional wisdom about suffering in our modern Western culture is that it can only be a meaningless interruption, that the best that we can do is to try to avoid it as much as possible so that we can gather as much happiness here and now. I want you to hear instead the unconventional good news in Paul's words to us. Nothing, nothing, not even your suffering is wasted in light of God's good grace. Therefore, Paul says, you may rejoice even when you suffer because even your suffering is sacred. And Paul tells us precisely how it can be so, how it can be a sacred experience for us if we let it. Because suffering uniquely produces these virtues of endurance, of character, and ultimately hope for a future in which suffering is no more. The word here for endurance means single-mindedness or focus. If you've ever experienced suffering, you know that you, you gain a kind of clarity that you had not had before about what truly matters and what truly doesn't. And such a clarity, I think, is rare. And one result of it, I think, is an increased capacity for gratitude. But in addition to the clarity that suffering brings to our life, it also produces a type of courage that only comes from having been through a trying experience, a difficult experience. That, that's what Paul means here by character. Suffering strengthens our resolve such that we often discover that we are able to live much less afraid lives than ever before. And finally, this chain reaction that suffering sets off leads to hope. And friends, sometimes, oftentimes, hope is all you have in the thick of suffering. Hope that even though you're going through hell, that God will not abandon you. And if you are in that place right now, I hope that you will cling to the promise that Paul offers here that this hope will not disappoint us. This hope does not put us to shame. It does not embarrass us because the love of God has been poured into our hearts. Recall what the theologian Stephen Colbert said about joy being the infallible sign of the existence of God. You might think that um, these words which were taped to his computer screen for quite some time uh, create a kind of rather stereotypical theology for a comedian. But if you know anything about Colbert's story, you know that he is far from stereotypical. 
A few years ago in an interview with GQ magazine right before he began his run at late night, Colbert said something that, um, when I'm being honest, it still mystifies me. For context, you should know that Colbert comes from a large family, something like 11 kids. And when Colbert was 10 years old, his father and two of his, his brothers, the two that were closest to him in age, were killed in a plane crash. Which, as you can imagine, left an impact on him. And when asked about how it could possibly be that Colbert could suffer the losses that he's suffered and yet still be such a personification of joy, here's what he said. Colbert offered two reasons. First, the example of his mother, whose faith saved um, her from being swallowed by her sorrow. Colbert uh, says that she would gently remind him often regarding this and other things in his young life. What, what is this in light of eternity? Which gave him a kind of courage that he had not yet experienced. And he admits that it was by her example that he is not a bitter or resentful person. But he goes on, and in Colbert style, refusing to offer a pat answer, he says this, I learned to love the thing that I most wish had not happened. When I first read that, I thought to myself, nope. <laughs> That seems pretty straightforwardly wrong. But then I took five minutes. I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. I read more and I began to understand his point. When he was asked to clarify what he meant, Colbert shares about uh, comedians learning to love the bomb. That moment when a comedian experiences total abject failure on stage. Most comedians will tell you that, that bombing is unavoidable, but that's a, it's a crucial part in their formation of becoming a, a good comedian. Colbert applied this concept to his life. And he wants to be clear that everyone knows that he's not saying that he's glad it happened. He says the experience of losing his father and brothers was a bomb in his life left him exposed and vulnerable, but that eventually he learned that the power we can claim in the powerlessness of suffering is the ability to choose whether or not to hate and resent our lives or to choose to love them, even the parts that bring us pain. And I can't help but wonder if Colbert is channeling the Apostle Paul offering us a modern-day parable to show us that it is indeed possible for suffering to be more than just a meaningless interruption in our lives. That our suffering, though unwelcome and terrible as it is, though it is a bomb that leaves us exposed and vulnerable, that our suffering, too, can be redeemed by God and ultimately be a sacred part of our story. And if that's true, Paul is right to say that our lives will be filled with an incomparable joy. Thanks be to God. Amen.